Welcome to this episode of the Turf Dudes podcast brought to you by Heralds. Our Turf Dudes are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they're seeing out there. Topics focus on turf health, nutrition, control solutions, and the latest in academic research. You can subscribe to us at iTunes and Google Play or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S.com. And you can send your questions to at TurfDudes on Twitter or by email to TurfDudes at Heralds.com. In today's episode, Dr. Raymond Snyder, Heralds Director of Agronomy, and Campbell Cox, Regional Sales Director for the Southeast, caught up with Dr. Bruce Martin, the Research and Extension Turfgrass Pathologist at the PD Research and Education Center at Clemson University. They're discussing real-world turf disease management and best management practice strategies to optimize playing surface conditions. Well, Dr. Martin, thanks thanks so much for making yourself available here. Uh, we, we understand that you're 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 moving towards uh, a new chapter in life, retire retirement. Yeah. You, you, you can't tell how big I'm smiling. <laughs> I am. <laughs> you seem really happy this morning. Yeah. The, uh, there's a big boat show in Myrtle Beach uh, on Saturday. Oh, good. Good. We, we see the strategy moving forward. Right. That I like that. Yeah. And uh, so, how can you describe a little bit? How many, uh, you know, how long have you been here at Clemson? And yes, a long time. Uh, I started in 1988 here. Uh, actually, was in South Carolina about a year and a half before and taught at the uh, Ori Georgetown Tech uh, down in Conway near Myrtle Beach, uh, which was good deal, but for me because it allowed me to get to know the Myrtle Beach guys right off mm-hmm. the bat, mm-hmm. and then I got hired by Clemson, and uh, been here for about 30 years now. 30 years at this year. Per- yeah. turf pathology, pathology turf in general? Turf pathology uh, for the last 22 uh, or 3 years, because I was field crops and turf before that, and all plant pathology, but I had tobacco, corn, cotton, and turf and turf like it was nailed on yeah but that was that was the afterthought at that one was time. the afterthought except that golf was booming you know then and myrtle beach and everywhere golf was just growing and there was a lot of uh awareness of how important the turf industry was mm-hmm. so eventually i was able to move into 100 percent turf and uh other folks took the field crop uh responsibilities and I think that was good for, uh, definitely good for me, uh, good for Clemson. It all yeah. worked out. Well, with such a long, distinguished career, do you have a highlight or two that you care to point out? Is there something that Surviving you're... Surviving 30 years, <laughs> <laughs> that's a highlight. Big you get through the, uh, the academic... Uh... Yeah, I mean, you know, it, was, it wasn't necessarily easy uh, because when I got here, there was nothing uh, from the standpoint of turf other than... The rec director here at the time, I was talking about building plots, and he goes, uh, have at it. You know, got any money to help me out? Have at it. <laughs> That's you know, great. So it, it took a while, but and I had a partner, Dr. Jim Camberato at the time. Uh, he, was, he was with me, and we kind of worked together to build a facility here. Now, when you start, when you begin, initiated the the turf program here, um, what, what, and you initiated your your career into the turf, 
what was the predominant turf species around? <laughs> well, we this? still kind of grew everything, but ultra dwarfs were not even a twinkle in anybody's eye. It was all tiff dwarf and 328, and it was bent grass. Uh, so Myrtle Beach was maybe 50% or more bent on the greens, obviously, fairways like they are now, tiffway. Uh, everybody overseeded uh, when they had Bermuda grass. So at that at that time, it was for a short period of time, it was still ryegrass and poetry of mm-hmm, mixtures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 85-15, it was mm-hmm. an 85% ryegrass, 15%. Yeah. And uh, some innovative superintendents started pushing the envelope and going 100% poetry of. Every now and then somebody would sprinkle bent grass in there and usually be sorry because uh, we couldn't get rid of it later. Mm-hmm. That was the deal, and, and of course diseases were just front and center on the bent. So predominantly early, it was cool season diseases that were the focus. It was, because uh, tiff, dwarf, you know, the low height of cut was 530 seconds. So I'm (laughs) I'm aging myself right there using that terminology. What is that, 150, 160, 1,000s or something, I don't know. Well, and there was, and I may, may get my facts wrong here a little bit, but there was a significant winter kill event in the, the mid-70s that caused the conversion to a lot of bent grass courses in the area? I think uh, or 84. Is Was it 84, that. early uh, 80s? Yeah, that's so. what I understand. I wasn't here then, but uh, there was, uh, yeah, I think it went all the way up to Greenville, killed fairways, Bermuda grass fairways, and, and we've had those events. Uh, you know, they're rare events, but... Uh, uh, you know, we just went through uh, a real cold snap. As you know, everybody preaches covering greens. But we're in the transition zone here where that's a, an iffy proposition whether they cover or not. Uh, tends to be, like most things, folks that have labor and money, they'll cover. And uh, they can stand maybe a few days of, of not having golf. And I'm saying they cover and they don't uncover mm-hmm. <laughs> for a while. And that's what we just went through. So. so based on how you're feeling for this season and the way that the temperatures have gone for the southeast and the deep south, what's your... I think we're okay because we, we, we eased into that cold weather and the Bermuda went, went dormant. Okay. And so I think at, to this point we're okay. We never know until June. So there was an opportunity for turf to assimilate to Yeah, to, to acclimate the... and go mm-hmm. into dormancy yeah. with all its carb reserves. Uh, I know a lot of guys are wondering about that right oh, yeah. now. You know, what's this winter sure. going to look like on the come green up and come springtime? Well, and, and we'll see some dead Bermuda but on greens, but it'll be where we have shade. It'll be where we have shade on the south edges of those greens. and uh, In other words, where the trees are on the south, southeast side, and they're shading the greens. Those, those areas stay frozen longer, and uh, that's where we see it. So that's nothing new. That's... As you know, the kiss of death on Bermuda grass is shade. shade. And, and so, you know, that's not going to be anything unusual. And, and we'd see that even at lower temperatures. It's just there may be a little more of it because of the, the cold weather that we've just had. So so early on in your career, it was predominantly a disease market focused on cool season grass. And uh, when did you begin to see that transition to, to the point where you began to see more and more Bermuda grass. I'm sure that must have well, been an interesting transition. Yeah, and 
of course, nematodes is one thing I've worked on for, for a long time, and, and we had nematode problems in Bermuda, obviously, back then, but uh, we also had uh, Nemecure <laughs> and Nemecure Dazinet and some things uh, that did a pretty good job uh, for the nematodes. So really didn't work much on Bermuda grass uh, back then. Uh, the transition occurred when the ultradorfs were introduced and so the late 90s, about, I think we built our first uh, Tiff Eagle and Champion greens a day. It was the same green, and then we had those two varieties that were planted a day apart, and I think that was 1997. And I, I drove to University of Georgia and got foundation stock of Tiff Eagle, mm -hmm. and then the Champion folks obviously shipped sprigs uh, from Texas. And... Uh, that was, uh, I think Wayne Hanna had some experimental greens in Georgia out a couple of years before, you know, where they were looking at Tiff Eagle, obviously. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just continued to move that way. So the, so the, the transition to ultra dwarf certainly was a factor. Is there anything about those grasses that uh, made them more susceptible to disease, or was it well, other, other variables in addition? It, it was a perfect storm in a way uh, because uh, the initial uh, plantings of some of those grasses uh, were done on two, on greens that were too droughty. They were too sandy. There was a little bit of a trend even with bent to start cutting the peat out a little bit, and it was all about saving money. And, uh, you know, we warned folks mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that they're kind of playing with fire there but I didn't realize how bad it was actually going to be. Turns out, so it's it's that situation plus the limited rooting of the ultra dwarfs compared to the old cultivars leads to a droughty, uh, nutrient deficient si si uh, system, and we're still sort of living with that. And I think that's where a lot of the disease susceptibility uh, came in. Uh, Maybe not for spring dead spot, but for chronic diseases like leaf spot, it's definitely nutrition-based uh, issues. Dollar spot, obviously, uh, the mini ring disease. Mm -hmm. right, we right. saw the mini ring disease in the old cultivars uh, before, but it was a minor thing. We'd see it kind of like, boy, isn't that interesting, that mini ring. We'll grow out of that, no, no problem. So uh, but when the ultradorfs came along, we weren't growing out of those symptoms. So what did a what did a typical fungicide program look like when it was uh, Tiff Dwarf in 328? Uh, I remember talking to superintendents about, well, what do you spray? You know, uh, Mancozeb. What else do you spray? <laughs> Mancozeb. That was it. You know, and if they were pushing the envelope, they'd pay for the the green stuff for. But. Uh, is that more of a was that more of a proactive or reactive mindset? It was reactive. It was for leaf spot when leaf spot started showing up. Now you you also have to remember Raymond. They they when it was only tiff dwarf, they were pushing the envelope on cutting height to try to match bent grass uh, conditions, and uh, that led to problems. You experienced it in Florida. That's really where Bermuda grass decline got its reputation was on tiff dwarf, mm -hmm, and, to, mm -hmm. and they were trying to to push it well beyond what the cultivar could handle. So the ultra dwarfs, I don't mean to imply that 
they're bad. They're just more susceptible. And and if you if you're honest, they've been a home run. Right. <laughs> they provide right. the golf conditions that that uh, the clientele demand. It's just that you got to have higher inputs. So we, we were at a time when fungicide programs on Bermuda were more reactive. Right. And and now I imagine your strategy is perhaps a little different. Yeah, we learned it on bent, because, and we knew that we had to be proactive on bent grass. Uh, even back then, obviously, bent grass uh, was really damaged by diseases in the summer. And, uh, you know, we knew pretty much what the diseases were. We knew what we were dealing with. and uh, But, you know, there wasn't any information uh, or even a lot of thought about deploying fungicides in a strategy which is really all a program mm-hmm. is there was just it was still kind of reactive and and folks you know would look on labels and go well yeah it's labeled for brown patch i'll choose this one maybe because it's cheaper or whatever even though we had done efficacy trials for years and years and we kind of knew how the fungicides stacked up and then things like heritage come along in the late 90s that provided you know really great control of certain diseases better than what we had before so it just evolved that way with new chemistry and then uh, and then some trials where we purposely put things out in a strategy based on to the diseases that occurred at certain times so that you know that was all pretty logical and it turned out that it made a difference how yeah. you deployed those and what you chose and and then we've continued. Well, I still do bentgrass programs. I did ten this past year, and and I do some for companies. And uh, then the ultra dwarfs come along, and we go. Well, you know, we need a strategy there as well because we're we find ourselves spraying more. Uh, when we lost Rubigan, spring dead spot became front and center, <laughs> and we're in the transition zone up here where spring dead spot's a major disease. Well, it. it became starkly obvious that the ultradors were very susceptible. We lose Rubigan, what are we going to do? You know, so we, we start working on Tebuconazole when it became labeled Torque mm-hmm. and Mirage and, and all the other generics that are out there. And then, then we get lucky. Every now and then we, get, we just get lucky. And, and these SDHI fungicides have come along. And uh, wasn't necessarily on Syngenta or BASF or anybody else's radar for spring dead spot. It was more dollar spot, brown patch, pythium. Disease the, the big, specific. The big diseases where they make money on fairways, that's where they, up north, that's where they put their eggs in R&D. But while we're down here doing those kind of trials, uh, you know, we might do a little program on Bermuda grass could start to look at some other diseases and we noticed we had spring dead spot control mm-hmm. both from lexicon and from Vallista. but these but these were in a program kind of a format where other fungicides were also being used but we we could narrow we could figure out where the activity was coming from then we did directed studies where we only looked at these for spring dead spot and we found out we had really excellent efficacy there and uh Turns out, uh, Kabuto has really good activity, so it's now labeled. And I was just talking to uh, Luke Dant, uh, who's with Syngenta, about 
one of their SDHI fungicides that we've been testing is an experimental that's going to be labeled for spring dead spots. So we're, we've got some good tools out there. Question for you about just going back a minute. Um, yeah. You know, nowadays, I don't know a superintendent. It'd be, be very rare to find a superintendent who doesn't have a fungicide, some sort of strategy, some right. sort of program that they're following. And, you know, there's there's plenty of them out there now that these guys can follow. Uh, early on, was that, uh, since that was somewhat of a shift in mindset for a superintendent, was it hard to convince guys to begin, you know, thinking about this in more of a strategic planned approach? Or, you know, or was it adopted fairly quickly? I think it was adopted quickly after 2007 mm-hmm. right <laughs> because that's when the so-called program 13 uh came along uh and it turned out that that was a the 13th treatment in a 20 program <laughs> trial that i did well let's talk about lucky 13 because because that's that's really honest and all all kidding aside that's where it got laid program 13 has been almost a game changer for the whole idea of programs and i don't want to overstate it but in some ways you're kind of the godfather of this program movement. Proactive well, program yeah. movement, yeah. 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 Let, let, let's talk about it. I mean, when we were doing it formally before that, but but that was, you know, as, as you know, diseases depend on the weather conditions. So it turned out from our initial trials were done with a graduate student's project, you know, and, and we had, we had uh, six or seven sprays. That's all we were doing. You know, it was pretty much June through August. And spraying every two weeks, so very simple program. Uh, as time went on, things changed. It started getting hotter, and it turned out it was very dry. That part we were in in really a prolonged drought from the late 90s up until through 2007. That's when the rapid blight epidemics hit in South Carolina and the East Coast, and the drought and the salinity were the keys to that disease mm. showing up. So I was I was occupied with that as well. But but the programs, we're kind of ticking along because we're interested. We're going, yeah, boy, when we do this, you know, we get this good outcome and it's cool and here it is. And and uh, then new, new fungicides come along like Insignia. Insignia was labeled 2003. And it was on our radar because it turned out to be the best fungicide for rapid blight. Well, it's a strobilurin. You know, how does it stack up to Heritage or Compass or whatever that's already out there? And we were doing that, you know. And, well, 2007 comes along, and we break heat records in South Carolina. It was, I remember joking around that it cooled down for our field our field day in August to 107, <laughs> which was a fact yeah. because we had, we were actually at 112 degrees at, at like for two or three days. And it was 110. It was a full week or 10 days of temperatures above 105, 106. It cooled down to 107 for our field days, and we had all these programs out there. Well, by August, you know what failed or didn't fail. And there were a lot of failures <laughs> of, of previously programs that would have looked pretty good. But that extreme weather condition put it, put it, you know, put the extra but it's pressure. But the ultimate test. It was the ultimate test. And these, these programs, it wasn't just 13. We had a couple of other programs that's, that BASF had that also had insignia in them. The insignia was being put in those programs for pythium volutum because this was also at the time when we were having pythium root dysfunction epidemics. And NC State uh, found that insignia was one of the better fungicides for pythium volutum. 
So we're, you know, I'm trying to not to be a dummy. I'm thinking we need to, you know, a program should be dynamic. You find new things out, you you change it, you know, to to hit that that new issue. And the new issue was was volume. So we put it in there, and I put it in, you know, at the beginning of the summer, and I put it in in the brown patch epidemics in the middle of the summer, and that was the thing that made the huge difference. And the, you had these beautiful bent grass plots. I mean, it was just as perfect to bend as you can imagine. You know, everybody's going like, "Holy crap!" You know, uh, we can do. You know, this is awesome. Of course, BASF was all over it, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and that's kind of how it goes. Well, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, it goes back to the Iliad and the Odyssey. When you get too confident, crap happens, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you ask for it, and uh, then it turns wet. Okay, so like 2010, one of the wettest, uh -huh. warmest summers, a really, really awful, stressful summer. Then the weaknesses of the program come out when you have pythium conditions. And and 13 had a weakness, and the big weakness was we were kind of only relying on phosphites. Well, you know, we knew that Segway was was good for pythium root rod and everything, but we weren't intentionally programming it in. We were still reactive with the with the Segway because it was a good curative also. But in bentgrass, you can't be curative in July. You have to you have to have it. So we changed again. We started putting it in. Uh, and, and intentionally, you know, taking a base program, which 13's turned out to be sort of my base program, and then I'll change components, or I'll insert two Segway apps and see what difference that makes. Turns out, it makes a huge difference when things go south. <laughs> when it's too wet, it's it's like grass or no grass. When it's a moderate normal summer, it's still you can pick the density and the turf mm -hmm. quality out. Because and it tells you that that pythium root rot is chronic. It's really out there all the time, and all it's going to take is the weather conditions to kick over. So you have to be proactive. That's the whole idea of a program, and we kind of learned it on bent, but now we're applying it to Bermuda grass. Do you have the Segway type product also programmed in your Bermuda grass program? Or it's, is that still a reactive curative? It's, it's sort of reactive, and the reason it is, Raymond, is because I don't know when to program it in. Mm -hmm. It's it's really clear with bent because you got three or four months of hell. We know when it's going to hit the fan there. But in Bermuda grass, you've got the fall, the winter, and the spring, which is up here is really our week time. And probably even in a lot of Florida, that's the key time that you can't stand disease because you're you're slower to heal from it. You don't have spring dead spot, but you've got Bermuda grass decline. You've got leaf spot that's chronic. You've got pythium root rot. You've got pythium blight. Pythium, and we do too. So speaking about pythium, you've got a fungicide like Segway that's on, you can only spray it three times at the high rate in a season. It makes it iffy of when. So I think in Bermuda grass we might set back and utilize the phosphonates as our background pythium control because we don't really have a limit on how much. We don't have a resistance problem with that. We haven't at least so far. And, uh, and then our other fungicides we can dial in. 
and obviously we're going to pay attention to the weather conditions. If it if the forecast looks nasty, we got hurricanes or we have tropical depressions that are coming in, then I would start to to implement it. Segway or subdue or banal or whatever tool we have, then you start putting it in because the conditions for pythium become more more likely, and uh, as, you know that's kind of how I would look at it on Bermuda. So use the phosphite as your your general foundation defense against those, right. and then program in the the the, the true the um, bullets bullets yeah. when you when you see the potential for stress or those conditions or or reactive real, when you actually have something right then. a real blowout. Mm-hmm. And 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 so one you know one kind of example uh, of that recently uh, was working with a particular golf course in Florida who who they were growing in two greens or two golf courses, sprigging two golf courses, uh, and they asked uh, me and BASF to work together to write them a program for sprig establishment. So we. We did, and and uh, it was for both broad spectrum disease control and pythium. Pythium turns out can be a real problem during grow-ins, mm. and it's not necessarily on everybody's radar <laughs> that it is or can be. But I've seen the examples where it it, it makes the difference in the sprigs establishing. It's because there's a lot of water being utilized. You're, you're watering it's... and fertilizing to beat the band, mm. and, and when you think about it, it's at, a, at a time of year when it's very hot. It's very high. It's a recipe for pythium. If you mm -hmm. look in your textbook, you go, whoa, why wouldn't pythium be active under those conditions? And obviously the sprigs are not going to be free of disease. They're coming from field-grown plants. The Potentially, they're going to be infested. So turns out they probably are. So it sounds and, like the fungicide program is now starting... At sprigging well, in some cases. It, I think it's a key time. Uh, you've got six to eight weeks of, of getting those things established, and everybody wants it quick. You know, uh, they'll say, well, when do you want to be putting on these greens? <laughs> as soon as possible, mm -hmm. you know. It's yeah. like, if I can do it in six weeks, I will. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you know, it's going to be eight to ten weeks most of the time. And and so it's insurance. Uh to, to at least factor out the seedling disease or disease on those sprigs. Turns out that actually putting lexicon on the sod before they cut the sprigs a week or so before makes a huge difference. And we measured that on a green that we grew in this summer. We, we did an experiment. It was beautiful. Yep. It was huge. And, and then we would superimpose additional fungicides after sprigging to continue that until everything's covered starting to see a lot of great information about the use of lexicon for sprig establishment. Uh, that's been tweeted about and other things, and BASF's doing a good job. I want to go back to something real quick. I don't want to let you off the hook on this one. Um, I think the information you just shared about pythium and sprigging it growing is might be new news to some people. Yeah, it's um, kind of new. Yeah. So I want to take the opportunity to ask you, do you have a recommendation then at that timing to, to uh. look at a specific... Well, the recommendation would be, obviously, if you're going to grow in a golf course, sprig at the optimum time so you've got all the time in the world to get your sprigs established. Less of a problem in Florida, more of a problem up here. I've, you know, I've seen pe people, they want a sprig in June. That's great. 
but they don't end up sprigging until August. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Right. Because something happened, and they just didn't get it done, and then they're sprigging. They're still trying to grow it in in September. Well, yeah. they can count on Pythium becoming a problem in that because you start to get those cooler days and shorter I mean, shorter days and cooler nights, and that's that's when Pythium really will jump on it. So that's the first thing is try to make sure you, you've got the time to grow those greens in and do it at an optimal time. And then you're going to get the greens under play quicker, obviously. Yeah. I'm convinced, uh, and really it's, it's just pennies on the dollar, the cost of one Lexicon app on the sod farm is nothing compared to uh, the cost of the sprigs and the benefit that you're going to potentially get out of it. Now, you only know in hindsight, but if you're watering the heck out of it, you know, four or five, six times a day before those sprigs dry out, to keep them from drying out, you know, pythium could be active right then. could be inhibiting the initial rooting. And so, so a lexicon application at the sod farm, and then would you follow that up with one Typically, I would follow it up after the greens uh, have become stable enough that you can get out there with, with a sprayer. So as soon so, as you can get a sprayer without too much... Right, and lexicon might not be the only thing. Uh, if you feel that you need to put something out, then you can obviously walk a grain or... Uh, Head, headway or something. I wouldn't use headway because of the propiconazole, but you could use heritage or mm-hmm. something. Some granular form of a broad spectrum material might be needed. Phosphate? Well, yeah, possibly. Uh, now, in this particular grow-in, we looked at uh, Signature. It didn't have as, as strong an effect as Segway. But it wouldn't anyway for Pythium because that's just the way the efficacy stacks up. But uh, but the phosphites would help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Great there's a lot of lot of different options and ways to go, and we're just at the beginning of this. I mean, I we designed something for this particular golf course that we figured would work, and it was additional lexicon after after uh, the greens were stable enough. It was additional segway. It was some dacanil also. And uh, and it turned out that where this was done, they had like 25 inches of rain during their first grow-in. Yeah. And uh, it was awful, awful conditions for growing. They were successful. Yeah. They grew it. Sounds in. like a, a good good timing in the, on their part to reach out to you well, and it just, set something up. It worked up. out for everybody. Yeah. And good. Well, and I think why why this is such great information is because these clubs put a lot of pressure to reopen in such a quick amount of time that superintendents are looking for any type of advantage they can get. And if this is something that they can try that gives them four or five days quicker turnaround or or five days is a lot when you're talking about revenue. Absolutely. That's uh, great information. And a successful product at the end of a... And it's also, if you just factor out the the golf revenue part of it and just... Just you don't want to be starting over having to re-sprig some areas or patch some areas or whatever because, uh, <laughs> you know, you want to get on with business. So that's that's the deal. And it, it's just some insurance. It may be that you get lucky. It's hot and dry. But I, in one situation I was involved with, uh, it was hot and dry. Conditions were hot and dry, and they still had pythium. Mm-hmm. And I think it was what I would call pythium root dysfunction. It wasn't 
obvious pitching blight or anything. It's just that the guy's spring's quit growing. Yeah, right. And when we diagnosed it, it was pitting. And uh, we were able to turn it around, Raymond, with a phosphonate and then followed up with a lexicon because we'd already learned about the lexicon mm-hmm. being a benefit. Mm-hmm. So Good. In that case, it turned, it, it allowed them not to have to re And they were under the gun. Everybody's under the gun. doesn't matter who it is. But they were under the gun to have their greens grown in and strong enough to actually overseed them in the fall because they were going to have a tournament the following spring on TV. Wow. So they were, you know, failure was not an option. Right. (laughs) Like it ever is, but it was not an option. Wow. Let me me ask you a question because we, you you touched on this a little bit earlier, but... um, and we talked about a lot of different options with programs, and there's a lot of different products out there. What about the, uh, resistance, resistance management? Yeah. Are, can we over? Is there a certain class of chemistry we can potentially overdo? Yeah, there's several classes. Uh, the DMIs, we're not likely to over overuse those in Bermuda grass turf because most of them are pretty potent growth regulators. So we're you know, like for fairy ring control, we may do two DMI apps a month apart, and then we're going to rotate probably to something else. Uh, and we haven't had a problem so far with resistance to the DMIs, but they have with the Aller Spot up north. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be the same players where we're really in, in I think, a relatively high risk are with the SDHI fungicides. Now, they're a frac group seven. Uh, that's the fungicide resistance action committee code that's on every fungicide that'll tell you kind of the risk if you look it up. If you look that up, it's going to say moderate risk. Well, moderate risk really depends on the disease situation. So the moderate risk is most likely going to be dollar spot. That's where we're going to probably see it. Well, guess what? We've seen resistance to boscolid. It's been documented now. Well, boscolid's been out since 2003 or four, something like that, emerald. And uh, but now you have it in honor, uh, and now you have uh, exemplar, and you have lexicon that has SDHI fungicide. You have Velista, you have Kabuto, you have one or two others that haven't been registered yet that are coming on. And these things are great because they're broad spectrum. Now we're not just going for fairy ring. We're going for leaf spot. We're going for take-all root rot. We're going for spring dead spot. Uh, And that, obviously, more fungicides in that chemistry adds pressure, Mm -hmm. uh, selection pressure. So we have have to be careful. We have indemnify. We have exteris. Uh, which is fluopyram, which is an SDHI fungicide. So it's being implemented now for nematode control in the case of of indemnify and uh, and leaf spot control in, in the case of exteris. So how does a turf manager wrap themselves around this, the potential for resistance uh, and implement all these great well, chemistries into their I programs? Think, well, and I would also just add to that, especially when maybe in their career or on their property, they've maybe not seen challenges necessarily with resistance. Right. And that's actually, that sucks us into complacency in the south. So they're they're tuned in in the north on that for dollar spot because they're spraying a lot for in fairways for dollar spot, and they've seen it. They've seen it happen. That's where the big problems have been. But now we're spraying more. 
and we're even possibly spraying fairways, you know, and past Palem would be another place where you're spraying a lot for dollar spot and for large patch. Might be the place where we see dollar spot resistance first. And these SDHIs, some of them are just awesome dollar spot materials. So we're going to lean on them. So that's the thing. Uh, I think what superintendents need to do is work with folks like you and uh, folks like the major manufacturers and help to design a program that's appropriate for them where you, you account for resistance. Actually, in our old programs in 97, 98 in Bentgrass, that was in my mind. And if you look at the old programs, they're, they're very well thought out from the standpoint of resistance. <laughs> so we're using multiple chemistries with different modes of action. We're also using a lot of chlorothalonil. And, and that was the real basis for, for breaking uh, resistance issues because the penetrance, the SDHIs, the QOIs, possibly the QII, which is Segway, are all prone to it. Now the SDHIs. So thank gosh we have uh, Mancozeb and we have Dacanil still. And we have Secure. It's a contact. Those are going to be some, you know, the fungicides that we can put into programs to help break the potential for resistance so if or you're lessen do, the risk. If you're going to do one thing, it sounds like you at least want to have regular applications of those chlorothalonil secure type products right. to to minimize resistance. And they're good, they're good in their own right mm -hmm. for uh, at least short residual products. Again, going back to the weather, if you have Let's say you have a base program, but leaf spot leaks through it somehow, and the conditions are really right for leaf spot. Probably, if it were me, I would grab Macazeb first. <laughs> I would try to knock it down with that, and then I would put a residual. It's the old Pythium Blight strategies, basically. You knock it down with a contact, and mm -hmm. then you get a penetrant that gives you residual control. It gives you the residual. And, uh, and, and you can do it with tank mixes. Well, I think it's a testament right now to these programs and the manufacturers that are putting the programs together, the universities that are putting the programs together, because by and large, superintendents are putting a lot of pressure on this system right now. Oh, they you know, are. With the number of sprays. Yeah. And I would say that at least in the southeast uh, and the deep south and maybe even in the Florida some, Raymond, you can comment, but there has not appeared right now to be a failure of any of these major fungicides for their intended use. And that's so far, so, that's really, that's so really far, good news. Yeah. But if someone uh, reports resistance in dollar spot off of a past Palin fairway, I won't be shocked or surprised. Yeah. If yeah. it happens tomorrow, I'll say, huh, there it is. There, there it is. Go. Yeah. So it's, it's not a matter of if it's sort <clears> of <throat> when, and really all we're doing with our strategies is we're lessening the risk. It's not like we're preventing anything. <laughs> we're just trying to minimize it. And the, the problem is a lot of the new chemistry that's been coming out has been SDHI chemistry. So uh, turns out BASF has a, chemi a chemical we hope will be labeled in a year and a half or so that looks really super awesome. In my trials for lots of diseases, that's a DMI. And it's a DMI that doesn't growth regulate. Oh. So the only one that I know of that doesn't growth regulate is Briskway. Yeah. That's diphenconazole that's in Briskway. So Hot temperature, summer work. safe. Summer safe on bent and Bermuda grass. And uh, 
Super efficacy for root diseases like spring dead spot, take all root rot. We know it has activity, really good activity. And it gives, you know, not that the DMIs are out of the woods, but at least it gives us an option that we can we can break that pattern on the SDHIs potentially. We'll see, you know, where we find out it needs to go. You know, that's all to be worked out. Let me ask you a question about, uh, you mentioned nematodes earlier, and there's some, some nice new uh, products, especially for sting nematode, that also have uh, fungicidal activities, or perhaps they were actually fungicides that have nem nematicidal activities. Right. So uh, managers are utilizing uh, things like indemnify, exteris, um, what what role do they have in terms of complementing a fungicide program? Yeah, I'm still undecided about that. Uh, we're doing some trials with Bayer, uh, with Indemnify, uh, and Exteris, just typical things where we are looking for uh, spring dead spot activity or, or take all root rot activity. Right now, it looks like the SDHIs and fluopyram is one are very weak on gamalomyces. So it doesn't look like much help. Uh, some of them are strong for spring dead spots, some are not so strong. Right now, I think fluopyram has activity for our spring dead spot, Ophiosferlicori, but not as strong as Lexicon or Ballista. So it may help, and a little bit of help is fine. Uh, it turns out I, I really like fall applications of indemnify for sting nematode control up here, and I think they fit in a good part of Florida, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that timing is is good from the standpoint of, of getting a little help on spring dead spot. But here we go again where we might be doing SDHI, SDHI, and then another SDHI three times in a row. Uh, maybe we're going to break that in the future with this new DMI from right. So, you know. So in general, utilize them, especially indemnify in particular for its nematicidal right. quality, and then accept whatever else it is exactly. providing in terms of. Uh, Same as the plant health effects from some fungicides. You really want to deploy these things based on their activity as fungicides. What are they going to give you? And then if you get a plant health effect, that's icing on the cake. And I kind of, that's the way I look at indemnify. Um, now, some of the long residual benefits that we see out of it, may the fungicidal effects may be a big part of that. I don't really know, to be honest, because we see the nematode populations creeping back up like they always do. And yet we're seeing good turf quality really persist with indemnify in Bermuda grass especially, and I'm, I'm just astounded by it. So should turf managers in some respects not ignore counts, keep, put them in perspective with what they're seeing visually on the surface? Please, please put them in perspective. Uh, we've pled with people uh, for years about that, that, that we're not out for revenge. <laughs> if we're out for revenge, we want to kill them all and, and that's it, you know, wipe the slate clean. We never could do that with anything. We can't do that with curfew. We can't do that with anything. Nemecure, we couldn't do it. So they always come back and we hit the rebound, and, and so it's no surprise. Uh, it would be a surprise and a shock if we killed them that efficiently. 
with anything. So the counts to me, I just did some counts this morning, you know, before y'all came. That's a diagnostic tool. Do you have a nematode problem or not? Well, in this case, the guy has one. He's got a high sting count. The medicine probably is going to be indemnified. Uh, he's going to probably want to come back in six, eight weeks, and and if he sees a few sting nematodes, he he can say, well, I didn't kill them all, but boy, do my greens look great. And and chances are that's what he's going to see. So the the lesson I think. Uh, is the yes they're going to come back, but what you're really paying for is residual turf quality. That's the whole idea, and uh, that's what I would be basing my decisions on of when to apply and how long is how long it lasts, and was it worth it that application that that fee that you paid for that that thing? And turns out with indemnify it looks like it's it's worth it mm -hmm. in most mm -hmm. cases. Not every case because it has weaknesses for Lance and uh, you know that nematode we've still got a glaring need for something else and in my opinion we don't have a good Lance tool with anything that's out there now. Would you say that Lance is something that we can manage through with a little more fertility, uh, a little more mowing height perhaps yeah, or definitely. those types of things, and tolerable? We have, we have been doing that. Uh, Every now and then I'll see a Lance problem that, that seems almost uncontrollable, but by and large, Lance, we, we tolerate really high counts of Lance, and we, we've been able to get by better. And when you have a mixed population of something like Lance and Sting, we, we may see those Lance counts go up, in some cases rather dramatically, and yet the turf quality has improved because you control the sting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, it's almost like, yeah, the Lance populations went up, but so what? Because the turf is great, or, or at least much better. And that's the way they need folks need to look at the counts. So um, it's an interesting conversation. I have a question about if you got a property whose greens look really good, turf quality is exceptional. But as part of their program and strategies, they're looking at counts going into the fall. They come back and they get their counts back, and the counts are relatively high from a sting number. But the turf quality looks good. What would your advice be to that particular manager? Because maybe at that point he wants to make a decision, well, I don't. at this point I can't allow this to sneak up and grab me, right. or do I just continue to do what my eyes tell me? Comment? Uh well, it's, uh, I guess I would go back to the history of their experience at that site with nematodes. Uh, in my experience, in most cases, with a pathogenic nematode like Steam, it's so pathogenic, I would find it hard to believe that they have excellent turf year-round. <laughs> so it may be that his turf quality is good because he did something the, the previous spring that helped, and now those counts have come back to the point where uh, he needs to make a decision. Now, he could decide, I'm not going to do anything till the following spring. Chances are he'll, he's better off than he would have been if he hadn't done the original spring. Or he could say, hey, I've got a big tournament that's coming up in February. I can't risk a nematode blowout at this point, which could happen. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and make an app. But maybe I'll go a half rate of whatever it is. Or maybe... I've got some root knot there, and I'm going to rotate. Instead of indemnify, I'm going to use divinem 
Divinam heritage, and I'm gonna I'm gonna work on this root knot population mm-hmm. a little bit, and and it works on sting too. It's just slower than we've seen with indemnify. So it's a lot of thinking and strategizing still. I think what's important in all this is that the advent of some of these new options for nematode management Definitely. have come on at a time when I think a lot of superintendents were putting the, the nematode portion of their strategies almost in the back of their mind, and it wasn't something that they were often yeah. keeping in mind and, and thinking about at the, at the onset or at the you know, and, up front. And this is all about root health. And... Uh, and it turns out that some of these soil-active fungicides, like Heritage, <laughs> they do a lot of heavy lifting in the context of nematodes. So some of the lance issues, you know, we may be managing because we've increased our fungicide use a little bit, and we're we're just getting better control of things like Gamanomyces at times when when we were having an interaction with nematodes that was really detrimental, or even pythium. I know Dr. Crow's got a project going on with pythium and nematocytes, which is very interesting. So, Speaking of interactions, what are your thoughts on fertility inputs, disease susceptibility, and, and the, you know, the role of running uh, lean and mean and and disease incidents well you know i'm pretty old school and and uh and i'm i'm not uh apologizing for that uh, at all because i've seen inbent bermuda you name it past palum where i see more disease problems that are chronic uh it's a big component of it is low fertility so dollar spot obviously is the glaring you know example we're all taught about in school and it's true in warm season grasses, we can fertilize our way out of dollar spot. In zoysia grass, you know, it's kind of weak on dollar spot. And we don't want to fertilize zoysia a lot because we'll develop the patch problem and, and other issues. And I use dollar spot kind of as my key to tick a little, tick the fertility up. When I see the dollar spot come in, I'll say, well, okay, time to fertilize a little bit. But on Bermuda grass greens, uh, I think in some cases we've gone way too far uh, down, and growth regulators have allowed some of this. But sooner or later, you're going to pay the piper for that. And it may be that you're living off of residual nitrogen for a while, but when that eventually runs out, it could be at the wrong time, and and then you're going to be clawing your way back. And it could be a big disease outbreak that you're clawing your way back from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm a believer in adequate fertility, whatever that is. <laughs> and it's it's debatable based on soil type. You know, we mentioned sand-based greens and too droughty a mix and environments like Florida where you get lots of rainfall. Well, you're going to be more nutrient deficient there than we might be up here with less rainfall. So... Uh, it all it's all in the context of the situation. Uh, now we, we recently conducted a, a study with you and we looked at varying fertility levels and varying um, fungicide inputs and with and without phosphates phosphites. Do you have any you've been have you been able to draw any preliminary conclusions based on on the, yeah. that project? Oh yeah, well it's pretty it's been pretty evident. Uh, can, can you set it up a little bit for us? Yeah, what, what so you did what there? we did, I, I guess you have a what are you calling your program? Balance well, approach. We, about a year and a half ago, we started working with the University of Florida, uh, talking about the importance of the, just considering the whole system, 
nem right. nematodes, your fungicide programs, and proactive. Then a, a proactive and uh, a balanced nutrient input right. uh, system. So, and we, we called that uh, balanced the balanced approach. Right. You know, it's pretty yeah. simple, but that's what we've been calling it. Yeah, and it's and so what we did, uh, we took your balanced approach from fertility standpoint and then we superimposed a fungicide program which was a year-round program starting in March aimed at fairy ring then some other applications for leaf spot and uh, and then we did that you know and then and we're up here in the transition zone so we have to consider spring dead spot in the fall and leaf spot and we we did this with and without uh, tidal fight uh, which is a phosphite, and uh, I had the balance, you know, the what I would call the high fertility, if you want to call it that, but we really should be calling it adequate fertility. Mm -hmm. It was designed to be not too much, but uh, definitely not deficient. And then we cut a good bit of that fertility in half <laughs> to mimic uh, what some superintendents are doing out there. And, and I think if we added up the end, it would be something like four pounds versus eight. It's going to be in that ballpark somewhere. Uh, some of that is liquid fertility. Uh, some of that is, is granular, very little granular, you know, periodic granular. And then, but a lot of spraying of liquid fertility. And then the fungicide apps, some of those are water in, some are not, depending on uh, the disease control that we're going after. So that was kind of it, and uh, I believe there was also um, a Primo. There was Primo pretty much in everything, and the reason we and the Primo uh, rates were 0.125 ounces per thousand weekly uh, in the high growth months, and then backed off a little in the fall, and then eliminated now in the winter time. So uh, the reason I think we had Primo everywhere is because that's fundamental. <laughs> Everybody's right. doing that. It's a standard. Now, that bites you in the butt when you have too little fertility and a disease comes in. Because if you're continuing to use Primo, it prolongs symptom expression. We know that with certain diseases like dollar spot or, or leaf spot. So it turns out, we just I just sent you all a bunch of data, <laughs> and it turns out that the balanced approach with the adequate fertility and the full fungicide program is our best treatment. Statistically, and that's analyzing essentially the whole uh, nine months that we mm -hmm. ran it from March until December, and uh, and then the second best uh, was the same thing with uh, I think without phosphite, uh, or it could have been slightly less fertility with the four fungicide, but those were starting to rank up there. The thing that I found interesting was the the addition of the phosphite uh, which was put out about every couple of weeks mm -hmm. made a measurable difference so what's going on there you know probably I think it's chronic pythium that's out there that yeah. we never really see blow up uh, unless the weather condition hurricane comes in and so I really wanted to do this for some years since uh, Actually, since Hurricane Joaquin came through Florida, that's the storm that sunk the, the boat in the Bermuda Triangle. Mm -hmm. And it came up here and it stalled out 
across the east coast and it dumped rain into the Carolinas. We had 25 inches of rain like in 24 hours in Columbia. Several people drowned in Columbia, mm-hmm. in the city. And then it soaked the eastern Carolinas. Well, we had Pythium blow up up here like I've never seen before. Really, literally, I've never seen epidemics like that. And needless to say, a poor transition (laughs) the following spring. Well, it turns out you you start asking questions of superintendents, lots of meetings. And how did you do? Well, we got nailed. How did you do? Well, you know, we did okay. And, And you go, what's different? They're spiking their tanks with phosphide every couple of weeks. They're putting it in there for whatever reason. You know, they feel like it was helping. But we never had, this was all hearsay. We never had a, a real experiment where we measured it. So now we do with you guys. Right, right. And I'm confident now, based on this, that the phosphite is doing, the tidal fight's doing something that's a measurable benefit. So full, full fertility or adequate fertility proactive fungicide program, inclusion of the phosphite title fight provided with the best quality density pretty, and pretty much perfect uh, Bermuda grass as far as I can and I can't make it as, as perfect as a good superintendent because I don't have those talents but as in the context of, of our uh, management it was it was good it was as good it was as it gets and this was in a green that has, uh, a moderate root knot. We don't have sting nematode in the green. We did have spring dead spot. It's going to be interesting to see how spring how it comes out this spring and looks. Uh, because So we're not done with this trial. We want to see how it comes out of transition now. Yeah, that'll be really this, important. Particularly because we've been so cold. Yeah, it's a good so year to put it to the test. Yeah. Well, you know what? We'll wrap it up here. We're really thankful you gave us tremendous amount of information and sure yeah. you got one more one more thought I, Campbell? I, do, I do have a question for you because uh, it was mentioned a couple of times throughout the course of the conversation um and it has to do with this concept of plant health oh Maybe, yeah and you know and we've so you mentioned an example of applying pyroclostrobin to mm-hmm. a sod farm prior to the sprigging and then you mentioned it again in your trials that you saw in 2007 where the heat was so detrimental but the right so do you do you just care to comment since we have the opportunity to talk just about well that's a big subject what, what's happening <laughs> what's happening with what's happening with plant health well it's still out there like it always was uh and i you know i go back to uh isn't that why we use fungicides i mean aren't they plant health materials right. forget the plant physiological effects we're, we're really suppressing a pest so that we have healthier plants. The outcome is to have healthier plants. The mechanism in that case is to suppress sclerotinia homeocarpa or rhizoctonia solana or whatever. So, I mean, that's the way I've always looked at, at fungicides, and it goes back to the nematode counts. We're not out for revenge. We're out for healthier plants. So, you know, when, when things started happening with some of the uh, SDA or the uh, QOI fungicides like Insignia, you know, I'm I'm going back and reviewing the literature back in the 1970s, and and what you know probably where this kind of hit the news back in the day was ben, Benlate, Benamil, and it was one of our first systemic fungicides. Systemic meaning xylem mobile fungicides, so it moved through the plant. 
It was, in its day, this was Terza in 1991, it was a miracle drug. I mean, no kidding, it changed the game. Uh, very broad spectrum, excellent disease control, and people noticed, because it was being used in field crops like wheat, that they could spray it in wheat, and when there was no rust or powder mildew, they still could measure a yield increase of 3 or 4%. They were thinking this is a plant physiological effect that's beneficial. The plants were greener. Mm -hmm. the, and the same thing happened with DMI fungicides, like triadimophon, which is balaton or propiconazole. So you go back in the literature and you see these reports. Those were plant health effects. I mean, they were measurable plant health effects. So what's happened is the fungicides that penetrate the plant, they're in intimate contact with the cell physiology, and they have effects on plants' physiology. Some of them are detrimental effects. They're, if they're really severe, like Rubigan is to Poa annua, we might use it as a control for mm -hmm. weeds. Yeah. <laughs> but if they're mild and all they cause is a greening, which we've seen forever with DMI fungicides or thiophanic methyl, we see greening effects out of that. We'll say, hey, that's a good thing. It's not harming it. It gives us a little better turf quality. That's cool. But the reason we put it out there was to control something. This disease, that disease, I still think about it that way. Even though the companies have gotten more serious when they've seen some things that they couldn't explain otherwise, they've gotten into the lab and actually did the science, which I think is very cool. So BASF has done that. Bayer has done that with Signature, with their phosphites. They've done it with their pigments as well. And... Lo and behold, some of them are antioxidants in the case of pigments. Uh, is that the real mechanism? Well, maybe. You know, we could debate it, but at least there's a mechanism that's been demonstrated to uh, reduce oxidative damage to cells. So when, when it's really hot, in the case of bentgrass, it may be that a little bit of pigment is a good thing, but if you have too much, then you have heating effects. So it's all it's all about measuring it and, and determining. To me, I call it an added benefit. If we can if we can demonstrate it, it's a real effect. It's been shown in the lab. I think that's very cool, and people need to know about it. Uh, are we going to depend on that as the mechanism? Uh, not in most cases. In the case of uh, dacanil action. It's pretty cool because the acebenzolar does not have fungicidal effects. So we can rule out the fungicidal thing, and if we can measure an increase in dollar spot control or pythium control, that's due to the acebenzolar. To me, that takes the whole argument out the window that these things do or don't happen because you still hear people attacking each other with ads that it's BS or whatever. It's not BS. It happens. Mm -hmm. The, the, the degree that it happens is, is debatable because when you get into the field, that's true of fungicide efficacy as well, and weed control and everything else. It's all in the context of, of the system and the pressure and everything else. So. Good. Long I mean, answer. I wanted your take on Long that. Long answer. Yeah, excellent. That's, that's, that's so great. Thank you. That's great. Well, we understand that you're not retired yet. You still have a full-time <laughs> job, 
And we yeah. can't, Dr. Martin, we cannot thank you enough for your, your time to join us on on this Turf Dudes podcast. A tremendous amount of information. I think I'm going to go back myself and listen to this multiple times just Absolutely. to 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 digest and and under you know refresh myself with a, a career's worth oh. of information in oh, it's all in a short period of we time here <laughs> well thanks everybody for joining us thank you campbell cox dr martin and we're signing off so long that concludes this episode of turf dudes to reach dr martin at least until his upcoming retirement you can email him at sbmrtn at clemson.edu or call him at 843-519-0460. Send the Herald's team your questions or comments or to be featured on an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email at turfdudes at heralds.com.